I will say that I was a science nerd from a very young age. I actually have sitting in my office at work a tiny little child's microscope that I was given as a gift when I was, you know, very, very young. And I was that kid, you know, if I cut myself, I would run into my room and put some of the blood on a slide and see, I didn't know what I was looking at. I don't think the microscope was even strong enough to really see anything, but the interest was there. That was Dr. Jill Hollenbach, an immunogeneticist at the University of California, San Francisco. Today, that former self-described science nerd leads research into one of the mysteries of COVID, Specifically, why some people get the disease but show no symptoms, and what that can tell us about treating and preventing it. I'm Alain Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. For years, Dr. Hollenbach and her team at the Hollenbach Lab have focused on a set of genes called HLA and HLA's relationship to autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. But since the pandemic, the Hollenbach lab has turned its attention to COVID as well. Their answer to the question of symptomless COVID may lie in a genetic mutation of HLA. Listen and learn why Dr. Jill Hollenbach is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm speaking today with immunogeneticist Dr. Jill Hollenbach, and we're going to discuss her research on COVID. Welcome, Dr. Hollenbach. It's really wonderful to have you with us. I know our listeners are going to be very interested in this topic. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I understand you're leading research into who does and who does not get COVID. Well, I first of all, I want to say that we're really focused on people who have tested positive for the virus that causes COVID, but never had symptoms. So for those who actually have had the COVID virus, but don't show any symptoms, why is that? Is it a genetic mutation? We think so. Not Probably not everybody, but in a, a proportion of the individuals that we've studied, it seems that a specific version of an immune system gene that we're interested in generally in my lab seems to make them much more likely to be asymptomatic. So perhaps you can tell us more about precisely uh, what you're looking at in your research. Are there implications in terms of genetic mutation? What can you tell us about what you've learned? Sure. So my lab is generally interested in a a set of genes called HLA, human leukocyte antigen. And I I think a good way to think about it is to think about um, the transplant setting. So when we talk about matching for a transplant, these are the genes that we match on. And in fact, to one major component of our study involved going back to individuals who were registered as potential bone marrow donors and asking them about their COVID experience because we already have data on the genes of interest for them. So HLA are genes that encode important immune system molecules. And the job of those molecules is to present or show to 
uh, your um, effector cells, your T cells in your uh, immune system, pieces of foreign antigen or peptide, uh, pieces of protein is probably the better way to put that, mm-hmm. that are derived from things like viruses and bacteria. And then the T cells come along and they inspect those pieces of foreign protein and generate an immune response if it's something that is is not supposed to be there. So the interesting thing about HLA is that they're extremely variable between people, between populations. So most genes have maybe one or a few different versions that we refer to as alleles. HLA has literally thousands and thousands of different versions that we see, you know, across the globe. And that's why it can be so hard to match somebody for a transplant because one person's HLA looks very different from another person's HLA. So what we and and many others hypothesized, you know, very early in the pandemic was that different versions of these genes, because they're so important in the immune response to pathogens, might be important in differential response to the the virus that that causes COVID-19. And so we went out to start looking for individuals who had tested positive because the important thing in studies like this is that it's very hard to control for exposure. So it's very hard to ask the question, does somebody who gets infected and who doesn't? Because there's so many variables in whether somebody's exposed to the virus, what kind of mitigation, you know, are they, have they been masking and things like the, um, the humidity in the room at the time of exposure. There's far too many variables for us to really say for certain that somebody has or hasn't been exposed or that their lack of infection is, is due to something genetic. But what, the question that we can ask is when somebody has a confirmed infection, they've tested positive. For the virus, mm-hmm. what does their disease course look like compared to the person next to them? And we know that there's a huge range of disease course, everything from asymptomatic disease to you know extremely bad outcomes, people becoming hospitalized, ventilated. In you know we've had you know a tragic number of deaths, and so what we want to know is what mediates that. You know, what is there something biological? Is there something genetic? And is there something about their HLA that changes how somebody responds to the infection? And a lot of the studies up to this point that have been done thinking about not just HLA, but genetics in general have really focused on the severe outcome end of the spectrum. And there's really good reasons to do that. You know, people have gotten really sick. We want to understand why we want to prevent that. Some of the reasons that those have been the um, patients who've been focused on are, are practical because when people are in the hospital, you're more, you know, it, it's much easier to get samples, biological samples like blood and, and DNA. But really, you know, the vast majority of people who experience infection do not wind up in the hospital. They have, you know, what we would term, you know, relatively mild to moderate disease. And we were kind of interested in those people and specifically the subset of people who just don't have symptoms at all, not a stuffy nose, not a scratchy throat, nothing. 
And so we ask that question, individuals who have been infected with the virus, did you or did you not have symptoms? And what we found was this extremely strong effect of a particular version of one of the HLA genes called HLA-B that seems to really enhance somebody's chance of not having symptoms when they're infected with the virus. So fascinating. And can that be determined in advance for somebody to know if they've got that makeup that they're going to be symptomless? Well, first of all, I want to be clear, just because you have this particular version of this gene, so the gene is called HLA-B and, and the version that we're interested in is called HLA-B1501, doesn't mean that you absolutely will be asymptomatic. It just means that you're prone, probably two to three times more likely to be asymptomatic. So I think that it it doesn't necessarily ensure that you would be. I don't know that it would be particularly helpful for somebody to know that. It's um, it's not a test that's done commonly unless somebody happens, for example, to be a, a volunteer bone marrow donor. They, they might know their type, but I don't know that that would be a particularly useful thing for somebody to know. I think that, you know, for me, it's more about what this finding tells us about the immunopathology of the disease and what kind of directions it can point us to in terms of possible um, vaccine design and, and possibly treatments. So this is ongoing research as you keep probing and coming to various conclusions along the way? Absolutely. So, you know, after this initial finding, we went back to the lab. We've since, um, and we're in the, in the middle of writing this up right now. So I'm hoping that this paper will be released fairly soon, but went back into the lab to understand, first of all, can we detect this in, in other patient cohorts? Um, and also, you know, what is the, the actual, um, functional activity of T cells in these individuals. So that's something that we've been looking at carefully and and, um, have some really interesting new data on. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. You head up a research team called the Hollenbach Lab. Are there other scientific questions besides those you've just been describing that you're looking at as well, trying to answer? Sure. So my lab at UCSF is is broadly focused on immunogenetics in human health and disease. So that mostly takes the form of us thinking about these HLA genes and um So, for example, one of the reasons that I am in the Department of Neurology at UCSF is that a particular version of HLA is also the the most important predisposing gene in multiple sclerosis. And we've examined a number of neurological diseases from the point of view of this gene system, um, Parkinson's disease, myasthenia gravis, for example. So that's ongoing work that we're focused on. We're, we're, we're very focused in on multiple sclerosis in my lab. And we're also interested in other common ailments and, and how different versions of HLA predispose somebody or, or protect them from common illnesses. 
as well as ubiquitous viruses like cytomegalovirus. So we're asking those questions all the time um, in the lab, and and that's really the the main focus. And we were doing that long before COVID, but you know, once the pandemic came around, we absolutely refocused a lot of our energies, um, as did so many others, um, to ask these questions. Well, and they're so important, obviously, because they affect just so many people who still don't have the answers they'd love to have, right? Right. I, You know, I mean, on the one hand, it feels like it's been a long time and, and how are we still here and why are we still worrying about this? Nobody, I, I don't think, anticipated this was going to go on for so long. But, you know, another way to look at it is there's just been incredible, remarkable progress made in a very short period of time. I'm completely blown away by, you know, the amazing work that's been done all over the planet trying to understand this disease. And it's really just been an incredibly impressive scientific feat. But I think that, you know, people like me and, and, and my colleagues are just incredibly motivated because we're the same as everybody else. We've experienced the pandemic the, the same <laughs> as everybody else, right? And, right. you know, I first started putting together the project to look at this, like so many other people sitting, you know, in my home office on, on lockdown. So I think there's, you know, a lot of motivation um, across biomedical science to answer these questions. Well, and I think that's that's true about your mentioning MS as well. So many people are afflicted with that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's an extremely debilitating disease and, and impacts, you know, people in the prime of their lives. So, you know, in general, this is just extremely gratifying work to do. And, you know, I feel like I've been really fortunate to have been able to focus my my work life on, on solving these problems. It definitely helps me to feel a little bit less helpless <laughs> in, in the face of, of what we've all experienced. Well, it's certainly critically important. Can we talk about uh, you a little bit, you personally? I know you're an immunogeneticist. Uh-huh. What does that mean? I mean, it's a big word, and I'm yeah. sure our listeners are wondering, what does she do or what does that field represent? Sure. So it's really a subfield of genetics. I trained as an immunologist. Um, I did my PhD in immunology at Berkeley, but I did my training during that time in a genetics lab. And so it's a subfield of genetics where we're focused specifically on these very variable immune response genes. And it really requires an entirely different way of approaching genetics and thinking about genetics because of the high levels of variation, but also because it's so important to consider the structure and the function of the immune molecules while we're thinking about the genetic aspect. So it's a a subfield that's generally um, focused on things like transplant and autoimmune diseases. But it really has um, kind of far-reaching applications. That is certainly wonderfully rewarding, it sounds like, to be able to explore these areas. How did you get interested in this field? Was it your upbringing? Was there a moment when you really said to yourself, I want to be a scientist? Yeah, I I will say that I was a science nerd from a very (laughs) young age. I was interested in scientific 
things as far back as I can remember. I actually have sitting in my office at work a tiny little child's microscope that I was given as a gift when I was, you know, very, very young. And I was that kid, you know, if I cut myself, I would run into my room and put some of the blood on a slide and see, I didn't know what I was looking at. I don't think the microscope was even strong enough to really see anything, but you know, I, I, the interest was there. I used to, you know, graph the details from my doctor's appointments and things like that. But, you know, actually when I was growing up, I didn't really understand that being a scientist was a job. I grew up in a, you know, in a a Jewish family where if you were interested in science, you became a doctor. If you were interested in letters, you became a lawyer. And those Mm -hmm. were kind of the only two options that were presented to me. But, you know, during the course of my education, I really kind of fell in love with immunology. That was during a period of time when I was working on my master's degree in public health. Mm Mm-hmm. I, at the time, I had actually been interested in going into women's health and health policy. I had gone to work for Planned Parenthood straight out of college. Um, but I got a little bit sidetracked and, and fell in love with immunology. And then during the course of my PhD, I was particularly interested in HLA because my mother had rheumatoid arthritis and HLA is very important in autoimmune disease and, and including rheumatoid arthritis. And that kind of sparked my interest in had an opportunity to, to work in a lab that was focused on these genes. And it's, um, it's been quite a long time. The rest is <laughs> history. Here I still am. Doing important work. Did your parents nurture your interest as a child in science or were there mentors along the way who uh, inspired you? I think, you know, my parents, um, my father was, was a CPA. My you know, my mom had been an English teacher. They were not really STEM people. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, they encouraged me, of course, but I think, you know, to be honest, I, you know, to the day my dad died, he used to variably describe me as a microbiologist, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a this, that. He never, you know, he tried, but didn't really understand what I was doing. But, I certainly, you know, I had some great teachers along the way. I had a, a physiology teacher when I was in high school who really sparked my love for that topic. And I, I went on to become a physiology major at Berkeley and then some, you know, really key professors during, during my time at Berkeley. So, um, yeah, some great mentors along the way and, um, peers and colleagues as well who have been extraordinarily supportive through the years. Well, here at Seneca Women, we often emphasize how important it is to have women in science, and we still have to do better in that respect. I think you agree as a general proposition. But I wonder uh, what you think about why having a women's perspective is important in your field, if it is. Well, I I guess what I would say is I, I don't know that as a woman, I necessarily have a different perspective, at least not on the science mm-hmm. necessarily. But, you know, as a professor at a research university, part of my job is to train the next generation of scientists. And I think that that's where, you know, having representation is really just so important. I think that, um, you know, we bring to the table a different set of life experiences, um, a 
different way of having experienced the world and moved through the world. And that is really, um, I think, an asset when we're training not just you know, the next generation of women scientists, but the entire next generation of scientists. I think that having that different perspective on, you know, life and, and, uh, life experiences is extremely important and helpful, um, as, as we train young scientists. Well, I always hate this moment, uh, looking at the clock when we're nearing the end of a fascinating conversation, but I really would like to ask you, before we have to take leave, you know, given that we've all collectively gone through a couple of years now of the epidemic, uh, we've been talking about COVID, we've been talking about other viruses. Certainly there are more on the horizon we haven't named or don't know anything about because they're yet at the development stage, probably. But given all that, what makes you optimistic? What gives you hope? Because this is tough stuff. It is. But, you know, as I said earlier, I realize it feels like it's it's been a long time and that it's been, you know, one step forward, two steps back through the pandemic. But, you know, from where I sit, I'm just absolutely marveling at the progress that we've made. And it's really been an incredible experience to be in the middle of these research efforts and to look around me and see my colleagues at UCSF and across the country and across the world who have really come together in, I think, a unprecedented way. And, and I'll say that the, the levels of collegiality and collaboration that I've experienced, you know, particularly working on this topic have just been so heartening. Um, I think that there's often a lot of, um, you know, competition in science and, you know, trying to be very protective and, and get ahead because, you know, just like everybody else, we have careers that we're trying to promote and move forward. And that's really a lot of that has fallen by the wayside during the pandemic. And the, the level of collaboration has, has been really something to behold. And I think that the proof is in the pudding, the strides that we've made. I mean, if, if you just think about the vaccines alone, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's really just an absolutely incredible scientific accomplishment. But that's really just, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg. What we've learned in the last two and a half years is absolutely mind-blowing. And so when I think about what comes next? I mean, there's there's always going to be challenges. I really hope there's not going to be another challenge of this magnitude in my lifetime, but but who knows? But when I see how folks really apply their expertise and come together to solve these problems, it makes me very hopeful that we'll be able to deal with whatever comes next. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jill Hollenbeck, for the important work that you are doing and will continue to do. It makes such a difference. And I know you've made us a whole lot smarter today listening to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And, and thanks for your interest in this work. Appreciate it. It's amazing to see how dedicated researchers 
like Dr. Hollenbeck, are tackling some of the world's most pressing challenges. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, while COVID has been a global plague, it's also brought about incredible collaboration among scientists worldwide. And that has resulted in tremendous progress against the disease in an incredibly short time. Second, Dr. Hollenbach reminds us that good science requires a diversity of viewpoints and backgrounds. As she says, different people bring a different set of experiences to the table, and that diversity is crucial as we train the next generation of scientists. Finally, Dr. Hollenbach shows us how personally rewarding scientific research can be. She says that working to solve problems like COVID makes her feel a little bit less helpless in the face of what we've all experienced. Tune in next time to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.